It's been a good day, hasn't it? I, uh, I feel the need to give you a description of the genesis of this talk. It began at a luncheon where I was standing over a beautiful display of fruits and sandwiches and food standing next to Gail Jackson. And Gail and his soft and gentle, tender manner saddled up next to me and said, <laughs> Of course, I asked him what he had just eaten, but... <laughs> Gail said, uh, so, uh, Reinstein, what are you thinking about? Of course, me and my innocence told him. <laughs> I said, oh, I've been thinking about obedience. He says, good, that's what I'd like you to talk about at Gallenberg. I said, well, no, 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 I didn't say I wanted to speak on it. It's what I've been thinking about. No, no, that'll fit right in. I want you to talk about that at Gallenberg this year. I proceeded to try to talk him out of the, uh, the invitation. He said, no, no, that's, that's perfect. But, Gail, I, I've just been thinking about it. I haven't been engaging in it. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand it. Needless to say... I've learned at least one thing from that, uh, that encounter. Regardless of what I'm thinking about, the next time Gail Jackson asks me, what are you thinking about? I'm going to tell him the dietary laws of Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling I'll be safe. I, and I guarantee you, uh, the only thing more uncomfortable than sitting in an audience during a talk on obedience is giving the talk on obedience. Uh, having said that, I began my thoughts, uh, I began really addressing the subject last year sometime when as I traveled around the U.S. meeting with uh, businessmen like yourself, I posed a question to them. The question was this. In light of the grace of God, in light of the fact that He saves us not by our works, but purely and solely because he is gracious, he elects us, calls us, gives us faith, offers us the gift of salvation. Are we obligated to God in any way? That was the question. Do we have an obligation to God? Now, I'm not going to poll the audience for your answer, but I will tell you that I was... Uh, I was shocked at the response. More than half, maybe 75% of the individuals who responded to that question said, absolutely not. God is gracious. I relate to him only on the basis of his grace. And though it's good for me to obey, important for me to obey, it is not my obligation. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight that that is false. That that conclusion, if you have ever reached that or reached anything close to that, is untrue at best and dangerous at worst. So, I approach the subject of obedience. I'll make my comments brief. I feel that way I'll be less accountable. 
but also I'd like to give you an opportunity to interact with me, interact with Walt and some of the other men that are here, interact with one another on the subject. For some of you, these will be new concepts. For some, they'll be old. But uh, in light of what is being taught today in the church, I think there are concepts that need to be addressed because there is a movement in our body, a movement among the people of God to deny the obligation that the people of God have to obey the God they serve and worship, the God they call on. It is seen as, in some way, a compromise of the Scripture's teaching on grace. I'd like to suggest to you that it's anything but. And the two truths exist side by side in their fullness. Obedience. First, I'd like to discuss with you the prerequisites to obedience. There are two of them. Two prerequisites to obedience. Number one is before I can obey God, I must affirm God's authority. I must affirm that God has the right to dictate the boundaries and direction of my life. I must affirm God's claim upon my life. Before I can obey him, I must affirm his authority. Now, that may seem rather obvious. Let me remind you of the difference between power and authority. Power is what? Power is always imposed. Authority is conferred. Illustration. The government tells me that on April 15th, I have to pay my taxes. Now, I don't have to submit to that authority. I don't have to confer authority on the government and respond. I can keep my money to myself. I've got other things I'd rather spend it on. I have the freedom not to affirm my government's authority. However, if they catch me, immediately I fall under what? Their power. And they have the power to put me in jail. I have the right to not confer authority, but they will put me in jail. For whatever his reasons... The living God has given us his creatures whose lives exist because he gives them life, because he breathes life into us. For whatever his reasons, he says, I can affirm or deny his authority. I cannot escape his power and that accountability, but I can deny his authority. Romans 1.21 is the description of the beginning of the degeneration of the human race, the degeneration of man, and it begins here. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They did not affirm His authority. We can be here this weekend listening to great teaching, having our minds stimulated, having new thoughts and old thoughts packaged and presented to us, and, 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 and even our lives challenged, and never affirm the authority of God. Never really in our hearts affirm to God that He has the right to determine the absolute direction of my life. See, there are some people here, perhaps, who would be willing to admit that God exists and that He's in fact come in the person of Jesus Christ to offer salvation to all men. But those same people have never felt the slightest impulse to abase themselves before that God, to fall prostrate before Him. They're willing to acknowledge Him, but they've never sensed the need to 
to fall on their face before him. See, some people think it's actually a virtue. If they really examine their hearts, they feel rather virtuous for having permitted God into their lives. You ever feel that way? You ever feel rather good about yourself that you're, you're allowing God to impact the way you live? It's an abs- I've been there, and it's absurd when you think about it. To think that there's any credit in honoring God as God, in affirming His authority. But I believe obedience begins with that confession. God, you have the right to command me. It is your absolute right. You have the right to dictate and determine the course of my life. By the way, that's regardless of the reasonableness of your requests, of your commands, I should say. Now, having said that, let me be quick to say that affirming God's authority does not necessarily mean that I consistently submit to that authority. But when I don't submit to that authority, at least I admit that I am not submitting to his rightful authority in my life. There's a difference between failing to submit to God's authority and rejecting his authority altogether. And a Christian can do either. Failing to submit is disobedience. Rejecting his authority is rebellion. You don't even have the right to tell me that, God. I disagree. The the scriptures speak... uh, rather directly to that attitude, Isaiah 45, 9. The prophet says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. It begins with woe. And that's not the kind of woe you say to a horse. That's the kind of woe that says, I don't want to be in your shoes if you argue with your maker. Romans 9.20 On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? God asked me to affirm his authority. And and again, remember, man, it's regardless of how reasonable or unreasonable those commands may seem to us. Because what happens is, I, I listen to the truth being taught, I go home and I read it, and I say, this just doesn't make sense as I try to place it into action. I mean, this is going to have devastating, a devastating impact on my business. It doesn't seem reasonable to do this, God. You deny his authority. If you feel open to question God's commands, you're in trouble. Isaiah 66 Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. How's that for perspective? Now where is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? My hand made all these things. 
Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But, watch this, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. See, all too often it's easy for me to take a, uh, a cafeteria approach to the word of God. I pick and choose what I think I'd like to obey, what sounds good to me, where I think I can respond and where I'd rather not. And that's an attitude that I, I, uh, I'm growing more and more fearful of. All right. One last thought as we, as, as we remember that a prerequisite to obedience is first to just affirm his authority. God, you have the right to tell me what to do. That's basic. But have you done that tonight? Have you said to God, you have that right, God. I affirm and confer the right for you to tell me what to do with my time, with my money, with my family, with my vocation. You have the right to tell me what to do with every area of my life. That is your right, and I affirm it. Second prerequisite is I must affirm the authority of the Bible. Again, basic. But it's a precept, it's an axiom that is under attack. Jesus said in Mark 13, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. If I confer, if I affirm God's authority, I must in turn affirm the authority of the Bible because He says, that is my word. That is the revelation of my will. If you want to know what I want of your life, you must give the Bible full authority in your life. 2 Timothy 3.16 It's a classic verse. You've all got it memorized. Somebody, who's got it memorized? 2 Timothy 3.16 How much of Scripture? How much, author- how, how much of Scripture should I submit to? Of the Scripture God requires me to? All of it. All of it. That's the prerequisite. Any questions? Just tell God He's got the right. He's got the right to dictate. It seems to me that disobedience is when I fail to submit to God's authority. I recognize he has the right to it. I I acknowledge his authority. I affirm it. But I blow it. I'm weak. Rebellion is when I, I reject his authority. I say... I don't think you're right. Or I've got a better idea. And that's willful. That's willful. And really, if you think about it, adding to the commands of God or ignoring the commands of God are two sides of the same coin. When I ignore the commands of God and say, not interested, it's really the same attitude that says, you know, I, I know God says this, but I think I'm also going to make binding this, 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 and this, and this. They're both expressions of independence from God and willfulness. I put myself in the place of God to say, I know better than God. I know what he, I know what he should have said even though he didn't say it. And some of the things he said I don't think are so good, so I'll ignore them. Second, the expectation for obedience. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17 
In verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, you know, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat. And you got the picture. You own this slave. He's working for you. He comes in from the field, and the first thing you say to him is, oh, come on, you must be exhausted. Come on, have a, sit down. Let me fix you something to eat. Will he not say to him, <laughs> prepare something for me to eat? Get yourself dressed and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you can eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Does that sound like an obligation? Absolutely. I want to throw out some passages and ask you to read it selectively. Would somebody read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20? Volunteer? Thank you. Romans 14, 7 to 9. Thanks, DJ. 1 John 2, 3 to 6. Kelly? 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And Matthew 7, 21. Who's got that? Thank you. Okay, the first passage. And remember, this is, I, this is under the heading, The Expectation of God for Our Obedience. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You are not your own. Have you come to grips with that? You don't belong to yourself. See, there's no such thing as an entrepreneur in the body of Christ. There are only two kinds of people in the world. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. See, there's no such thing as emancipation from slavery altogether. You just choose your master. And you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to God. We owe Him our lives. Romans 14, 7 to 9. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and we belong to God. We owe Him our lives. First John, now watch this one. This gets a little, little starker. First John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. We keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, does not keep His commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been by this we know that we are in him. One who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
By this we know we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. We don't keep His commandments. And we say, oh, we, we know God. John just says, you're a liar. Now, that's a little stark. In, in a minute we're going to get to the, the softness, the latitude. But basically he says, you want to know if you know God? Do you obey Him? If you don't, you don't know Him. Matthew 7.21. Would you read that one more time? A little bit louder? <laughs> Not really, but... Thank you. Is there any question in your mind what God's expectation is? Is there any unclarity? Any question what God expects of us as we leave here, having been exposed to His truth and His word? Do you feel like it's an option? Do you feel like you can leave and decide what you will and will not seek to obey? Okay. I just want to make sure we have the expectation clear in our minds. I I know there's more to the subject, so stay with me. Okay? Next thing. Next point I'd like to discuss with you is the prerequisite, affirm God's authority and affirm the Bible's authority. Number two, the expectation for obedience, I'm obligated Number three, what is God's standard for obedience? What is his standard? What does obedience mean to God? Let me suggest to you that in the economy of God, obedience is more than simply outward compliance. When I fly home on United, they're going to ask me to fasten my seatbelt, put my tray table in the upright position, and put my seat, uh, bring my seat up. Now, I can comply with those requests. Those commands, no problem. In the world's eyes, that's obedience. For God, obedience is more than outward compliance. Isaiah 29.13 Isaiah The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrous and marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. God is looking for more than just outward compliance. He's looking for the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The standard for obedience in the Word of God is not just the outside. It's not just the external. It's the internal. God is looking for an internal attitude first. Let me walk you through 
three observations regarding the internal and the external in our lives. Number one, the internal attitude precedes the external act. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 34. Let me repeat the concept. The internal attitude precedes the external act. Matthew 12, 34. Our Lord Jesus says this. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? Watch. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The internal attitude precedes the external. The mouth speaks only that which already fills the heart. Okay? Flip over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 11. Our Lord again says, Hear and understand, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Jump down now to verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Now, we've seen that. The internal attitude precedes the external. And those defile the man. Now, watch 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man to eat with unwashed hands. Does not defile the man. Jesus not only says here that the internal attitude precedes the external, but he says the internal attitude produces the external. See, notice he says that from the heart, out of the heart, come murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts. They start in my heart. So it not only precedes what I do, but it produces what I do. That's why God's concerned with it. The final note, uh, the final observation I want to make regarding the internal and the external is that the internal attitude will be judged along with the external act. See, we're talking about the standard of obedience, and God says, when I judge your obedience, I'm not only going to judge the external compliance, but the internal. The whole Sermon on the Mount is an attempt. Let's go back to Matthew 5 and notice something about the Sermon on the Mount. It's an attempt of Jesus to redefine for the Jews and the Pharisees in particular their understanding of what, what God's standard of obedience is. See, they were focusing all on the external. Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. 21 of, of Matthew 5. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 1 John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Don't miss that. He says, see, if you hate your brother, you're already a murderer. Morally speaking, it's the internal attitude that God is concerned with. Do you hate your brother? You're a murderer. Now, if you murder him, that's an external act. That adds to the problem. But your culpability for murder simply begins with your heart. 
That's, what, that's, that's the standard of obedience that God has. Not just my outward compliance. Not just that I don't murder. But that I don't hate. I don't covet. Okay. That's enough of that. That's... Would you repeat that question? Uh, it talks about the, he has feelings towards uh, hating or jealousy or covetousness, whatever he might have. If he chooses to obey, yet we still have those feelings or uh, heart's desires there, so we choose not to act on them. Where does God's part play in chasing our heart's desires? It's our responsibility. It's a great question. Did everybody hear the question? If I understood you correctly, you're asking, how do we address our feelings uh, when I may feel hate for somebody? I, don't, I choose not to act those out, but I can't get rid of the feelings. What is God's role in that? Or what is my responsibility to those feelings that I can't seem to, uh, to address? Is that what you're asking? My understanding, and I could be wrong, and Walt, Gail, anybody, Winston, Skip, correct me if I'm wrong, I do not believe that God asks me to control the uncontrollable. And my feelings, as far as I understand it, are not controllable. Now, I can control that which influences my feelings, and uh, I can control uh, how I respond to my feelings, but I can't control my feelings. It seems to me that the hate here is more than just a feeling of hate. It seems to be a, a willful, intentional attitude of hate that is in my control. Obviously, if we're talking about something that's an emotion, it's out of my control, I think I need to act appropriately, and then hopefully, eventually, the feelings will, uh, will fall in line with my actions. Now, Walt, would you expand on that? or You wouldn't expand? or <laughs> You won't? Or... <laughs> Bless those who persecute you and hate not. hard thing about that is this. I have trouble sometimes with my friends. Um, not to mention my enemies. Sorry. The way the psyche works is that, and we would say psyche, I think, we do thinking, feeling, and choosing. The scripture talks about the heart, but we know that the heart is not. I think the way the psyche works is that thinking, feeling, and behaving all tend to work together harmoniously. And that the way we think is going to determine the way we feel. The way we think and feel habitually determines our attitudes. Our attitudes are going to determine
determine pretty much our behavior. But each one of them will reinforce the other, and they all want to they all want to be together. So I'm thinking positive thoughts is hard for me to be feeling negative feelings. And so I think when I want to now some people obviously thinking and feeling and behaving, you look in a circle, each one affects the other behaving will check will affect the way you think. Thinking affects the way you feel, feel better. But if I some people can change their behavior and then your thoughts and feelings will come to mind from behavior. Other people find it easier to change the way they think. In other words, uh, and people talk about different paradigms. An example I heard was um, a man was on a subway, and next to him was somebody else who had two kids. Did you hear that story? And the kids were really, they were young kids, maybe 8 and 10, but they were making a lot of noise and terrorizing the subway. It was very late on a, uh, on a Saturday night. And um, so finally, the man said to the father, said, are you aware that your kids are, uh, are really annoying everybody, nobody can rest or whatever? And he said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't, I wasn't even aware. We're from out of town. Um, my wife, something terrible happened. She, she just died in the hospital. We have no friends here out of town, and I guess the kids are just so confused and so on. So immediately, the angry man looked differently at what was going on, and instead of feeling angry, he felt compassion and sorrow. So when he changed the way he thought, his feelings changed. And so I think that's one of the best ways to change the way we feel. In other words, and I think it's the reason why the Lord said, everything give thanks, and then don't be anxious. If I'm thanking God for what's happening, I can't be angry, sad, disappointed about it. So if I can change the way I think, I'll probably change the way I feel. Okay. I don't want to get into a, a long discussion on how we deal with these issues. Because I, all I simply want to, what, what, what I want to try to stay with, and I want to appreciate your input on this, but let's go back to simply identifying God's standard. That God is more, is, is, is as concerned with my heart as He is with my actions. And He does not excuse, uh, a sinful heart because I'm not, I'm not playing it out, because I'm not living it out. And these are all helpful observations. I mean, clearly we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, uh, but I, but I, but I don't want to get into simply how, I, how, how do I figure out how to address... I want to address dealing with my hatred at this point. We can talk about that later, but let me first move over the principle of... of uh, if I understand what you just said, then I'm stuck. If I hate a guy and I want to kill him, and I choose not to, which is obeying outwardly. But what you're saying with that last point is, from God's perspective, I've committed the sin anyway. God says if you hate your brother... You're a murderer in your heart. Now, it's not the same. Murdering somebody and hating them is not the same in its consequences. Right? But God says, morally speaking, the issue is what's in the heart. The issue is the hate. Let me move on. Oh, go ahead. No. But I believe there's a difference between emotion and attitude. Do you see that, or, or is that just my distinction? Yes.
I, I believe here's 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 what the best way I can say. I believe we'll be judged on that which we can control. We won't be judged upon that which we, we cannot control. And and I'm not an expert on emotions, but but my understanding is I cannot control my emotions outright. I can can influence them, and I can I can choose not to respond inappropriately to them. But I don't know that I can. Gail, do you have just scratching? Yeah. Test it. Excuse me. Got it. Excuse me. Thank you. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> After the meeting. <laughs> Time is flying. Let me uh, let me make two more observations about obedience. The next is the provision for obedience. God has a high standard. He has an expectation. But he also has a provision. And it's twofold. The first is he gives us his Holy Spirit. He does not ask us to obey him without giving us grace in the presence of his Spirit. It's part of the new covenant. He puts his Spirit within me to enable me to obey him. Galatians 5.16 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, Romans 8, 13 to 14. He has not asked me to screw up my own strength and energy, the ability to, to follow, which is that which seems daunting as we look at it. So he's given me a helper. Galatians 5, 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, and Romans 8, 13 to 14. The second provision he's made is the blood and advocacy of Jesus Christ. And that's forgiveness. The blood and advocacy of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin, I want you to obey. If anyone sins... We do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God would not command us to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if he didn't expect that there would be sins to confess. So while we understand he has a high standard, and we're obligated to obey him, he also understands that we will sin. So we have an advocate with him, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's interesting, in, in, in chapter 1 of 1 John, if you're looking at it, if you back up just a little bit, in verse 6 he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But, watch this, if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. In the same verse, he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So he understands that even as we walk in the light, even as the focus of our life, even as the commitment of our life is to obey, we still need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us because God knows we're in process. And what does it mean to be in process? It means to be under construction, not finished. And that's the way we are. We are under construction. 
And what's amazing, guys, is that God not only designed the system that way, that we wouldn't be in process all of our lives, unfinished, still cooking, as it were. He's designed it that way, and, and He's decided to put us on display to the world. I mean, if you've, if you're kid, if you've ever had a, a, a child who's been working on a project and you say, let me see what you're doing, and they kind of cover up because they don't want you to see it till it's done. Maybe you've done that. Oh, no, no, don't look. Let me, because there's something about the finished product that we know that's, that's the full expression of our will. God says, no, 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 I'm not even going to wait that long. I'm going to show the world a bunch of people who are in process. A bunch of people who, though I want them to be committed to obedience, I know they will fail. I know they will struggle. And that's part of my plan. And that's why they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God deserves perfect obedience, guys. God expects perfect obedience, but God understands that our obedience will not be perfect. He, he deserves it, He expects it, but He understands that He will not get it. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't relieve us of the obligation to pursue it. And what we're hearing today in the church is we do not have an obligation to pursue perfect obedience. It is somehow a denial of the grace of God. It is somehow placing an obligation on you that God never placed. And I hope that after tonight, if nothing else, you have a sense that God wants you to affirm his authority and his right to command you in every and in, in all areas of our lives. And as Walt once said, I'll never forget it, he said, you know, the issue isn't your batting average. It's not your consistency. It's your willingness to stay in the box and swing at the pitches. It's not how successful you are at obeying God, but it's your commitment to the process of obeying God that he's interested in. See, that's why he could look at David and say, after David had you know, done everything under the sun, immoral, and say still in his commentary on his life, long after he had died, this was a man after my own heart. This was not a man who lived a life of perfect obedience. But God knew his heart, and his heart was committed to obey. And that's what he's looking for in us. Let me close with this. Under the heading, so how do I apply this, this, this obedience? Well, number one, obedience requires the ability to distinguish between the commands of God and the traditions of men. Gentlemen, one of the reasons that we study the Bible as we did today is so that we understand exactly what it is that God has commanded and exactly what it is that He, what? Hasn't commanded. And there are a lot of things being taught today that God just hasn't commanded. And they're being taught as commands. And if you're going to obey God, you've got to be able to distinguish between tradition and command. That's what Jesus addresses in Mark 7, 1 to 13. We're not going to turn there because of time, but look it up later. That was the problem the Pharisees had. They had taken their traditions and made them equal with the commands of God. And the best thing you'll be able to do for your kids is to help them distinguish between the commands of God and the traditions of men. Your own family traditions. Hey kids, this is the way we do it. It's not a command of God, but this is the way we do it in our home. When you get out from under our roof, you can develop your own convictions. But help them determine and distinguish. Does God say you've got to go to church every Sunday? Absolutely not. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how often I should meet. See, see. Number two, obedience requires faith. This is obvious, but when God asked me to obey Him, 
He may decide to put my temporal well-being at risk. He may put my family at risk, my bank account, my vocation. He may say, you know, obeying me is going to cost you something dearly on this side of the grave. You're going to have to trust me. It's going to require faith. And we have already, Skip shared with us already this morning, without faith it's impossible to please him. See, that's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, for this reason I suffer, for this reason I suffer all the things that God has done in my life because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. See, I believe that my obedience will pay off on the other side of the grave. Even though it's costing me dearly here. Even though I'm suffering for it. Number three, obedience demonstrates my understanding of the grace of God. See, See, rather than contradict the grace of God, obedience demonstrates that I understand the grace of God. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Amen? Amen. Verse 12 Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God instructs me toward obedience. So as I obey, I demonstrate that I understand the grace of God. Not that I reject it. Number four, obedience demonstrates my love for Christ. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Number five, Obedience is tested
don't know about you guys, but I find most of the time God asked me to do things that I'd probably do anyway. They just make good sense. But it's the times when they don't make sense. It's the time when I really don't want to do God's will. That's when I learn obedience. That's when I learn the true nature of my heart. I think that's what Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do it. But what? Not my will, but thine be done. That was the test of obedience. Not when God's will coincides with our will. Not when it makes sense to us, but when it doesn't make sense. And finally, we'll we'll end with this. Obedience is not always easy to identify. Obedience is not always easy to identify, but it must be a priority. Here's what I mean by that. God commands me to um, put the interests of others before myself. Now, what in the world does that look like in the middle of a negotiation? In the middle of a, of a sale? In the middle of a litigation? I don't know. I can't tell you. God wants me to try to figure that out before him. It's not going to be easy to figure out what obedience to that command looks like, but I dare not disregard the command. I've got to get on my knees and figure out, Father, what does obedience to this look like? Love my wife. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm called to obey it. And that's true in, 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 in so many cases that it just isn't all that easy to identify what this is going to look like. But I've got to identify the command, distinguish it from the tradition, understand it may require my faith, and, uh, and before God, try to figure it out. But obedience should be uppermost in our minds. It has to be our commitment. Not my will, but thine be done. Let me ask if there are any questions, observations. Yes. Then it's going to be a natural, uh, natural not the right word, but it's going to be the next step would be just look to the owner for how we should handle his gifts for a life. Absolutely. And the problem is, the only way I know to do that is to get on my knees and pray. And that's a lonely pursuit. That's, that's a draining pursuit. It's the last thing I want to do. So you know what I end up doing? I get advice. Uh, I start comparing my life with somebody else's, and I, and I look at their stewardship, and I figure out what they're doing, and I think, oh, that looks good to me. I respect their walk. I'll put that in my life. And we cheat ourselves of the relationship God wants us to have with him as the owner because it's just hard to wrestle through, God, what does stewardship look like for me? And because we sense it's hard, we figure, well, let me do a favor to the rest of my brothers. Let me line it out for them. And I'll tell you what good stewardship looks like. Because I love you and I just I don't want you to have to agonize in prayer before God over what that looks like. And so he doesn't preach all that well. It's not all that satisfying. So let me let me help you out. And we just we shoot ourselves in the foot. We do ourselves a tremendous disservice. Not to mention we become legalistic. I got a 
grace of God. Yes. Is the natural conclusion then that it means that a portion of grace must be understood before obedience can take place? If we don't have a concept of grace, we cannot obey. I would say it goes beyond a concept of grace. I have to experience grace before I can obey. Excuse me? I mean, we have to know and understand grace, a, a, a little bit of grace at least, before any obedience at all. Yeah, and I'm saying I've got, to, I've got to know more than know it. I've got to experience it. If the grace of God hasn't, hasn't, hasn't taken hold of my life, if I don't have the Holy Spirit's presence in me, I can't do it. I'm sorry, one second, Bill. Back. Yes. Yes. I must distinguish within the Bible those parts uh, that I am under. God says I am no longer under the Mosaic law. Doesn't mean it's any less His word. Doesn't mean it is any less true and perfect in, in and of itself. And does not mean that God does not want me to learn from it. He says those things were written for my instruction. But part of establishing God's word as my authority is letting God's word tell me what parts of it I'm required to submit to and what parts I am not. See, I don't decide whether or not I'll submit to the Mosaic law. God does. He says you're no longer under law. That's not a principle of sanctification by which I want you to operate. And the reason I don't is not because I just don't like it. It's because he tells me not to. I'm kind of glad. I don't think I'd want to be under the law. But that's not why I, that's not why I don't live under the law. <coughs> um, uh, earlier you said uh, God expects uh, perfect obedience. Yes. But God realizes that he will not receive. Yes. So my question is, is God an idealist or a realist? <laughs> 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 He's an ideal realist. Is that what you said, Gail? Okay, Bill. I was just thinking about what you were saying about you were talking about the hatred thing and emotions and attitude. You said there was a difference between them. Would you prefer the difference between emotion and attitude? Uh, is that attitude is like either a verbal or a nonverbal expression of emotion? I don't know. Thank you. 
Walt, will you distinguish for us? Will you make a clarification here? Sit down, Walt. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Winston. <laughs> if God does not hold us responsible for that which we cannot control, and if we cannot obey without his grace, and if grace is not given to everyone, But begin, but begin, well, begin, if you would, by identifying where we, where we were absolving ourselves of too much and then walk backwards into that. If we say that God does not hold us accountable for that which we cannot control, and if we say that we cannot obey without his grace, and if we say that grace is not given to every man freely, as an expression of God's election, then we have to say that God cannot judge the world, which is clearly not the And we absolve ourselves too much. Okay. What would we want to say then? <laughs> now I'm feeling now I'm feeling a little more confident. <laughs> Very helpful. And obedience is obviously required independent of grace. Else, how can God judge the world? Obedience obviously is 
necessary and are expected independent of grace, else how can God judge the world? But there'll be a different standard for believers and non-believers possible. Different subjects, we have more resources. Well, did you just negate his statement that we are not judged for that which we cannot control? I think he's saying we are responsible for the way we feel. Because I think that's a psychological, a secular human position. We're not responsible for the way we feel. If you think you can't, a feeling is both a physiological reaction and an intellectual action. An emotion is what we think plus a, a physiological reaction. And I can't feel anything without having a thought that stimulates that. <coughs> In other words, the way I feel is not dependent on what happens to me, but what I think about what happens to me. So, and I am in control of what I think. So we are responsible for the way we feel. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, a feeling can be like a temptation. It can hit you, and you can be aware of it, and there's a point at which you have lustful thoughts, and, you, you know, you, you don't give in to them, you become aware you have lustful thoughts. In the beginning, you, you might not be responsible, but as soon as you become aware that you're thinking this, then you have a choice. Whether you are in control of your emotions or not is less of a factor that we are called to deal with the fact that they exist. So I'm out of court on whether we're held responsible for it or not. I'm, because the feelings do come from the heart, which is desperately wicked. So they're like flags that come, come across our face that says, deal with them. And maybe we are, we are held accountable, no matter how you feel about the feelings. Thank you for the clarification. Would you address that for us? No, 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 please. Winston. <laughs> Tell him to stand up. That worked before. Um, is your question, are there consequences to my, for my obedience or disobedience as a believer? Yes. And, and, and God will determine those. I can tell you some of the consequences. God says, for example, trust me, I'm not, uh, don't, be, don't deceive yourself, I'm not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. But God always determines the harvest. Might be this side of the grave, might be the next side of the grave. God says, my obedience or disobedience will impact my rewards on the other side of the grave. He does not give me a formula for that. God always determines the consequences of my disobedience. I cannot uh, second guess or I cannot anticipate what those consequences will be, but I am sure I can be guaranteed that there will be consequences. But they're up to God.
Would you agree with that? Would you like? Would you add something to that? Take away. One more, and then we'll we'll shut down. Well, I know there's consequences to disobedience, but is there a question of do we obey for blessings, or are we blessed because we obey? Dealing with the attitude we take to obedience, in other words, an earning or performance-based relationship, so I can accomplish something with God. Both and, as far as I know, as far as I understand the scriptures, God says, "You go ahead and work for rewards, work for gain, hard as you can, lay up treasures in heaven." Do it with all your might. Yes. You work heartily as from the Lord. For the Lord. Guys, thank you for the time. Good to be with you. Um, before we break up, uh, we thought it would be appropriate.